We'll start with a passage from John 11, which is, of course, very familiar to you. Um, and this is the story of uh, the raising of Lazarus. Now, a certain man uh, was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent a message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, I don't have nearly enough time to dawdle on this, but you know, that's the same expression that a lot of people associate with the author of the book, which is one of the reasons why some people have suggested, I don't really think it's correct, that Lazarus might be the author or the source material for John, because it's got that he whom you love or the one whom Jesus loved. But we will not allow ourselves to be diverted there. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. I, you know, some of y'all, sadly, sometimes the Bible speaks in Bible speak. We need to put this in a little bit more southern kind of language. We need to put this in the words of Cheryl Shepherd Leonard, my mom, who would have said when I come walking in with some skin knee or, you know, busted finger or elbow or something, it's not going to kill you. That's what Jesus just said. Um, and so here that, you know, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Yeah, it's not going to kill him is what Jesus said. It just seems so un-Jesus-like in the way that uh, it's said. In fact, in, in just a moment, we'll see how un-Jesus-like it is. Rather, it is for God's glory, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Accordingly, though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, that line is put in there because Jesus' actions seem awfully unloving in here. And so I love the way that this is the new revised standard. The revised standard just puts that word now. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus because that first line sure didn't sound like it. Oh, he's sick. Yep, it's not going to kill him. Now Jesus loved him. It's, it's okay. Um, after having heard that Lazarus was ill, let me read that one one more time. After having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Maybe we should go back a verse. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He's not acting in what seems like a very loving way, and so the text is going out of its way to tell us it's okay. He really does love them, even though his actions seem contrary to that. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. And remember what we talked about last week with the whole issue of the same word is used for Jew and Judea? Well, this is where that really comes out, is that Jesus is where he is. He's surrounded by Jews. Jesus is Jewish. His disciples are Jewish. The issue is they're about to go to Judea, back to the south. And that's where a lot of the opposition to him is. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now trying to stone you. I say that doesn't make any sense, does it? These guys are Jewish. What it means is the Judeans were just now about to stone you, and yet you're going to go there again? Jesus answered, and I love this, and the reason I love it so much is because I try to imagine this conversation happening in Mark's gospel. So with Mark's disciples as pugnaciously resistant to understanding Jesus as they are, just imagine this conversation. Their heads would just explode uh, if, he, if he spoke to them this way. It says, um, uh, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Those who walk during the day do not stumble because they see the light of this world. But those... <laughs> what is he talking about? What he's saying is, if it's daylight, you can see where you're walking, and so you don't trip. And guys, for me, it's always daylight. 
And so he's saying, I, I got this. I, I know what I'm doing. I do not think the Markan disciples would have picked up on this. Um, in fact, it says, uh, after saying this, he told them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll be all right. Jesus, however, had been speaking about his death, but they thought that he was referring merely to sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Oh, gotcha, Jesus. Now I see what you're doing with this. I don't really understand the daylight thing, but I get that Lazarus is dead now. It says, um, the, hmm. verse 15, for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there. Maybe we should go back to verse 5. Now, Jesus loved, you know, it, it sure doesn't seem that way. I, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Now, there's a lot of other wonderful stuff in there, but we're going to skip down to verse 21. This is where Jesus has arrived and Martha has come out by herself to meet Jesus. It says, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Did you hear how it just kind of slipped over into that Johannine speak there all of a sudden? If you believe in me, though you die, yet you will live. That same kind of staccato, repetitious form right in there. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. So uh, Martha goes back and she tells Mary and Mary comes out and says, when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus, uh, yeah, that's right. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. You know, how is it possible that you could take Jesus wept and turn it into Jesus began to weep? There are certain translations of the Bible that just ought to be left alone. I actually fixed one a little bit later on. He doesn't say, Lazarus, come out. As we all know, Jesus switched over to English at that moment. It says, Lazarus, come forth. Um, and then he went right back to Aramaic after that. It just boggles the mind. Um, Jesus began to, what's the line? You know, if the King James was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. You know, that kind of line there. I, I, I'm not a King James only person, obviously, but I, I do like the line. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, this is another line that ought not to have been changed. It's the best line in the entire King James Bible. It says, Lord, by now he stinketh. When we've got he stinketh, you just don't change that one. I just, I imagine some, you know, Elizabethan age mom when her teenage son came running in from playing whatever sport they played in Shakespearean times and go, thou stinketh. That, that's the line right there. You just don't change that one. Lord, already there is a stench because he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. 
I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here so that they may believe that you sent me. Now, you've got to pause for a second and think back to our discussion of Mark. In Mark, when Jesus goes to heal people, remember it's all don't tell anybody, don't say anything about what I'm doing or something, takes people aside privately, all of that kind of language there. Here Jesus is praying to God and he says, Lord, the only reason that I'm praying out loud is so all of the people around can hear that I'm praying and so that they will know that when I ask you for something, you always answer. It's the very opposite of the messianic secret, right? It says, then, uh, when he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Edited by Jeff Leonard. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth, and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. It's a, it's a wonderful story. It's, it's perhaps Jesus' most famous miracle that he does and what's so odd about it, or at least my graph in John, which is absent from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the question becomes, how in the world does a story like this get left on the cutting room floor? It's not as if it's done privately. In fact, it's the very opposite of being done privately. It's done publicly. It's, there's a crowd that's gathered to, there. He's praying out loud, all of these kinds of things. How in the world could this one not be included in the other Gospels? Well, I have an explanation for it, and this is where we've been heading. I said last week was my week to stir up trouble, and then this week is my, my week to try to you know, get, you know, lead us back to the shallow end of the pool or teach us the right stroke so that we can swim in the deep end of the pool, uh, ideally. If you look at this story, there's a kind of pattern to it. And I, I've kind of analyzed it there for you at the bottom. You notice that Jesus is told that a person is ill. That would be uh, Lazarus is the one who's ill, of course, as uh, Mary and Martha sent people to inform him. Jesus is delayed. Now, I, I say that in this story. What I really should say is Jesus delays himself. When he saw or when he heard that he was ill, he stayed two days longer. And so the, he, Lazarus has been dead for four days by the time he gets there. The person dies in the meantime. He arrives to find that people are mourning. There were all the crowds that were there in addition to, to Mary and Martha who were mourning, of course. It's interesting that he describes Lazarus as sleeping. Uh, our brother Lazarus has fallen asleep is the language that he uses. He speaks there at the bottom and raises the person from the dead. And then very interestingly, he gives instructions for taking care of the, the I guess technically we could call him the patient uh, here in medical terms. He takes care or gives instructions for taking care of the person's well-being. Unbind him and let him go. Now, the reason that I analyze this way is because I would make this case. I think the reason that the synoptic gospels don't include this story is because they already have this story. They just have a different version of the story. Flip over to the back of your handout and let me explain what I mean. This is a story that we've seen several times. It's the story of Jesus healing Jairus' daughter. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came and when he saw him fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, my little daughter is at the point of death. In other words, there's someone who's ill and someone has come and told Jesus that they are ill. Come and lay hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So he went with him. 
A large crowd followed him and pressed on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. See, Jesus finds out that the person is sick, but he's delayed. This time not because he decides to stay, but because of the, the encounter with the woman with the perpetual hemorrhage. And so in the meantime, while he's healing her, the person who is ill dies. While he was still speaking, some people came from the leader, a house to say, leader's house, I should say, uh, to say, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. Jesus arrives on the scene, and what does he arrive to find but all of the people who were there mourning? When he entered, he said to them, Why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead but sleeping. So our brother Lazarus has fallen asleep. The child is not dead but sleeping. Jesus again describes the person as being asleep. It says, They laughed at him. Then he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in to where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talita kum, which means little girl, get up. He speaks something. Lazarus, come forth. Little girl, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. She was about 12 years of age. At this they were overcome with amazement. He strictly ordered them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. How does the story conclude with Jesus giving provision for taking care of the person that he has raised? Unbind him and let him go. Give her something to eat. These two stories follow an identical pattern of how the stories go. And so there was a, uh, this kind of commonality between them. And what I think it allows us to do is we can take the story of Jairus' daughter and use it as the framework. And when we compare Lazarus' story to it, we can see likely what the original form of the Lazarus story looked like. It didn't have the large expansions, I am the resurrection and the life and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. What it had was it was a much simpler story about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, a story that would have looked very similar to the story about raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. And once you go back to the original about the stories that they decided to keep, and so every gospel writer keeps a different story. And so the, the synoptics, they keep the story of Jairus' daughter. Luke is the only gospel who keeps the story of the woman who uh, is, she's a widow and her only son has died. It's in the town of Nain and Jesus comes up and he sees the, the, uh, the beer being carried there. there was, someone had a wonderful line one time that I, I heard. It says, there is no evidence of Jesus ever having attended a funeral without stirring up trouble including his own, um, which I just think is a fantastic line. Why does Luke include this story? Because Luke is the gospel writer who describes Jesus as a prophet. And the famous prophet Elijah is the one who heals, raises from the dead the widow's son. Jesus encounters the widow with her son who has died, raises him from the dead. And the response the people has is, a great prophet has arisen in Israel. Well, Luke describes him as a prophet. That's why Luke includes this story. This is, I think, the reason why not all the synoptics included. Well, they didn't need it. They already had a story that was almost identical. Uh, the relationship to where Jesus is the 
see something tragic happen in front of him, the officer has to say, pick up your helmet, your gun, and get moving. Mm. He has to tell them the next step to do because they're in shock. These people were in shock because of what they saw. And, and so that's where the instructions come in. I think that makes perfect sense, sure. So the reason why I think that the incredible miracle that we see in the case of Lazarus doesn't occur in the synoptics is just because the synoptics didn't meet it, need that story. They already had a number of stories that were quite like it. So then the real issue becomes, how do we explain the transition from an event that looked a lot more like the raising of Jairus' daughter to the story that we have in the Lazarus story in John's Gospel. And I really think this is the key to understanding John, is that John is a different genre than the Synoptic Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels basically fall into the category of ancient biography. And so they're not exactly the same kind of biography that we would write today. You know, it, it certainly don't make any pretense about uh, uh, objectivity. You know, I want to give you a very objective account of this Jesus fellow and we'll size him up. They're, of course, not doing that, but we wouldn't expect them to. They, they don't make any sort of attempt at comprehensiveness. You know, we're not going to have like a four-volume biography of Jesus by one of these uh, people here. That, that's not what they're concerned about. They clearly are not concerned about setting Jesus within the context of the wider world. I mean, you, you read a, a collection of narrative sermons. In other words, what John has done is he takes a historical event and then he wants to tell us what we learn about Jesus from that event. But he doesn't do it the way I would do it, where I would tell you the story and then say, okay, now let me draw some lessons about Jesus. John takes the lessons about Jesus and embeds them back into the narrative. And so, well, I've got a couple of examples here for you. In all of the, uh, the synoptic gospels, as well as John, Jesus raises the dead. Well, once he's raised the dead in Mark or Matthew or, or Luke, we just go along the way. Now, there are lessons we could learn about Jesus, but you have to draw the lessons. John draws the lesson for you and embeds it back into the story. What is the lesson from Jesus healing the dead? Oh, it's not just Jesus is powerful. It's, I am the resurrection and the life. But now when we hear those words, I am the resurrection and the life, what we're really hearing is John saying, he is the resurrection and the life. Or the next one, Jesus feeds the multitudes. It happens in every gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus feeds the multitudes, and then you can draw the lessons from that. John draws the lesson for you. Jesus says three times after he's fed the multitude, I am the bread of life. In other words, he's drawn the conclusion that you're supposed to reach. Jesus is the bread of life. And then he's taken that lesson, that conclusion, and put it back into the story. Jesus heals blind people all over the place in the synoptics. Only in John does he heal the blind people and then Jesus say, I am the light of the world. What Jesus is, or what John is doing is he is taking the stories about Jesus and he says, yeah, in an ultimate sense, and then he weaves them back into the story. This is a very common way that ancient peoples did by telling narratives. I, I, honestly, it just kind of fits who I am better 
is that, you know, as a scholar, what I like is the narrative stuff. Um, I, I don't do very much with Paul's epistles or things like that. What, I, what I'm attracted to, it's those stories and seeing if you can't glean from those stories what the lesson of the story actually is. If you read my underrated book on creation, that's what you'll find. It's, it's all taking these creation stories and saying, what were they trying to get across by telling this story? That's the idea. John is taking the lessons of Jesus and embedding them back into the narrative about Jesus. What John wants to do is not just to tell us what Jesus did, but he wants to tell us who Jesus is. And he does it by letting Jesus himself say those words. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the door. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, I have two whole lectures of material left. I have 20 minutes of time left. So in the words of Robert Frost, we have miles to go before we sleep here. Let's press on. There are ways that we can, um, we, we can see how this thematic idea in John is expressed. And I don't think there's any place where we can see this better than in John's discussion of the passion of Jesus. The passion of Jesus is the suffering of Jesus, the, the collection of events that uh, lead from Jesus' arrest until his death, uh, and then uh, even uh, we could go through his resurrection if we wanted to. If we take Mark and, and John specifically and compare them, you can see how the two of them come to different conclusions about two things. First of all, there's Jesus' outlook on his passion. In other words, his outlook on the suffering that he's about to endure. And then secondly is the timing of his passion, the, the timing excuse me, of the events related to his suffering. So. Let's dive right in. Uh, you'll notice the first verse I have for you here, Mark uh, chapter 10, verse 33. This is the third prediction of the passion to uh, the disciples. Jesus uh, tells them repeatedly that uh, he's going to suffer. We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that's the way Jesus refers to himself, will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit upon him, flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. Jesus has just walked the disciples through the bitter process of his impending death. And you see that he describes it in pretty stark terms because it's a pretty brutal death. I, in my classes, would take much more time to talk about uh, the way the crucifixion works. It really is one of those examples of man's inhumanity to man. The Romans had perfected, if that's the right uh, term, this process so that particularly state actors uh, are the ones who are crucified. It's, it's usually, it's not, this is not what you do just for thieves or things like that. In fact, the, the two thieves on the cross, they're, they're not actually thieves. The word that's used there, lictors, these are rebels. Uh, usually this is a punishment that's reserved for uh, crimes against the state. That's why, like in the Spartacus Rebellion, you know, they, it's the slaves rebelling against basically the system, and so that's why so many crucifixions were done. Uh, they had perfected it to the point that it lasted three to four days. And usually you died of exhaustion, asphyxia. You couldn't push yourself up enough to breathe. We'll see in a, a little bit, you know, if you break the legs of the victim, it's called a skeletopia or crucifragium. Um, you can't push up anymore. Um, and so you, you suffocate fairly quickly. You know, the cruelest thing of it is 
The Romans, uh, you know, the Assyrians were the ones who came up with this idea. You just impale the victim there. But what the Romans had done is the way they would take the cross, they would put a little thing by your backside. Um, that's called a sedile. That's where we get our word seat from. And then another one uh, called a, a subperineum, subped under your feet, so that you could push up a little bit and you can spot the cruelty and that ability for you to be able to push up or get a little bit of leverage with your backside is that your body just can't help but breathe. It'll breathe water if there's nothing else available. And so involuntarily, your body just pushes up to get one more breath, but with every breath, it just means you're lasting that much longer on the cross. It's quite cruel. Uh, the flogging that Jesus mentions here, you know, some people, uh, I mentioned the whole uh, Passion of the Christ movie. If there was a criticism that was lodged against it in terms of the technical aspects of crucifixion, is they say three to four hours. Well, there's this inverse, perverse relationship. If you are beaten lightly, you'll last longer on the cross. If you want to die more quickly on the cross, it's because you, you were beaten more severely in advance. And so I think that probably does suggest he was beaten more. And then, and this is something from John's gospel. Remember Pilate, after he's had Jesus flogged, brings him out and says, et je homo, you know, behold the man. Well, the point of what he's saying there is, for heaven's sakes, look at him. Surely that's enough. Well, if he just got slapped around a few times, then obviously it would not be enough. Jesus probably was brutalized quite severely before he was taken to the cross. And I know I'm not the only person in the room who imagined as a child that crucifixion was something invented just for Jesus. And there were those poor fellows on either side that happened to get wrangled up into this, but, but basically this was for Jesus. It was not. This was something that happened on a regular basis. Jesus would have seen crucifixions before. Alexander Janius, who was a Jewish leader from a couple centuries before Jesus, he, he crucified 3,000 people who rebelled against him as his enemies. This is something that was unfortunately quite regular, and Jesus would have seen it, and so he quite rightly dreads it as a human. If you look at Mark 14, one of the most tender passages in the Gospels, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be distressed and agitated. He said to them, I am deeply grieved even to death. Remain here and keep awake. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. You know, this language of removing the cup I, I, I find very fascinating. And it was only about three or four years ago that I finally figured out what the cup refers to. The cup is Jesus' death. In fact, you can see it symbolized in his crucifixion because in three of the four Gospels, Jesus dies immediately after drinking the wine that they give him. In other words, that's the cup. The cup and his death are synonymous with one another. When Jesus says, remove this cup from me, what he's saying is, I don't want to go through this death. In fact, Jesus says this earlier in the passage. It says he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He doesn't mean I want to be crucified more readily. He means I don't want to have to go through this. In Mark's gospel, where we get the, the most tender human presentation of the person of Jesus, Jesus comes to the cross and says, oh, 
I don't want to have to go through this. Father, everything is possible for you. You could do this a different way. Don't make me do this. Remove this cup from me. If you look at Jesus' death in Mark, when it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, listen, he's calling for Elijah. Now you listen to what I read, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, and you go, well, that doesn't sound like Elijah at all. Actually, in Hebrew, Elijah is Eliyah. And so Jesus likely not in full possession of his regular voice, struggles to speak, and his word Eloi sounds a lot like Eliah, and they think he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a stick, and gave it to him to drink. That's the cup. Saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus only has one line on the cross in Mark's gospel. My God, my God, I don't understand why you've left me. And he screams and he dies. It is a very human presentation of Jesus. In Mark's gospel, Jesus dreads the cross. Look at how different John's presentation of the cross is. If you flip to the third page of your handout there, John 12. Now is the judgment, this is Jesus speaking, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Heaven, or, or maybe it's his resurrection. I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. It is so contrary to what Jesus is talking about that John has to put in an explanatory parenthesis. He said this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. Technically, one is lifted up when one is put on the cross. Whether it's the towel cross, like I, I believe the choir members wear, uh, where you're put onto the crossbar and set into place, or whether it's the Latin cross, where the, you're, you're nailed to the cross and then the whole cross is put up at one time. Either way, you are technically lifted up. But who in the world would describe this sort of brutal death that Jesus is about to endure as his moment of exaltation? See, in Mark, Jesus dreads the cross. In John, Jesus is embracing the cross. John uh, does not have any prayer for release from the cross in his Garden of Gethsemane account. And John 18, after, these, uh, after Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley to a place where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas brought a detachment of soldiers. Did you see what was missing? They went to the garden, but there is no overcome with distress and pausing to pray and going back. Could you not stay awake just one hour, guys? I need you. All of that language is not there. In fact, John 12 refers to that line from the synoptics. Look at John 12, verse 27. Uh, now is my soul troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it is for this reason that I've come to this hour. John is the polar opposite of that prayer to be released from it. Jesus on the cross 
is in a much more, um, I don't know, peaceful kind of uh, depiction. It says, uh, John 19, this is you know, one of the lines Jesus has on the cross. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, woman, here's your son. Then he said to the disciple, here's your mother. Jesus is on the cross and he's making arrangements for the future care of his mom while he's there. And how does Jesus die in John, John 19 again? After this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the wine on a branch of hyssop and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Do you see the difference in the death from he cried out with a loud cry and died? Versus his saying, it is finished, bowing his head and giving up his spirit. What is to explain the difference between Mark and John? My point about John is that John intends to tell us who Jesus is in an ultimate sense. And in an ultimate sense, John is right. Jesus' prayer in the garden in Mark was, Father, remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want be done. Mark emphasizes the first part, remove this cup from me. John says Jesus had the opportunity. In fact, uh, let me explain how uh, easy this opportunity is. Um, I'm looking at Beverly, I think. No, we, we do. We have several Israel veterans uh, who are in here with me. Um, and if, if they all kind of congregate right over here. You can kind of see the Shekinah glory just coming from over here. Um, it's, you know, it's a... So when I do my trips, uh, usually, you know, we, we, we arrive at, you know, at Tel Aviv, we're bleary-eyed, we, we, we uh, take our little travel uh, time down to Jerusalem, we head south, you know, that next morning, and we, we make our way all the way to the, one of the southern uh, points in Israel, this wonderful canyon called Mitzpah Ramon there, the Maktesh, and then we start to make our way back up, and we go up by the, the Dead Sea, and we, we pass by Matsada, and we pass by Ein Gedi, where David hid from Saul, and we're almost at the place called called Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were. And there's this little valley that you pass through, and it's got a sign that says Kidron. And I always tell my groups, I say, all right, pay attention to this place right here, because two weeks from now, we're going to be back here. That's with the students, so a week from now for my, uh, for my church trips. We're going to be, we're going to, I'm going to mention this again. I'm not going to tell you why, but this is it. And then we head on north, and they forget about it. And then on the last day of our trip, we go up to the Mount of Olives, and we follow the, the events of the last day of Jesus' life. We get to a church called the Church of St. Peter in Galicantu, which is likely built on the site of Caiaphas' house and has places underneath which have a decent chance of having held Jesus in the hours before his death. 
And what's so interesting about being at Gali Khan too is you can look out and you can see where the Garden of Gethsemane was. There's a church there called the, the Church of All Nations, and you can trace your way back up to the Mount of Olives. You can see where the Seven Arches Hotel was, where we were. And I say, this is the reason that I told you about Kidron. Because you can look right there and you can see Jesus left most of the disciples in this one place, probably called the Grotto, took a couple of them with him and said, pray for me because I need it. And then goes over and prays himself, Father, don't make me do this. And he goes back, and you remember how he defines the, the disciples. They're sleeping, right? If you can see the Garden of Gethsemane from Galicantu, then Jesus could see Galicantu from the garden. He could see the torches of the soldiers heading out from Caiaphas' house to come and arrest him. And he's all by himself. All he needs to do is walk up the Mount of Olives. I've done it many times. It takes 15 minutes. Slip over the hill and you're in the Kidron Valley, a place where Saul's army could not find David because it's just a series of slot canyons. With one 15-minute hike over the Mount of Olives, Jesus could have disappeared into the Judean wilderness and never been found again. But he stayed. While his prayer was, Father, with you all things are possible. Remove this hour from me. While his prayer was, remove this cup from me, he sat there and waited with full knowledge of what was going to happen. And said, but not what I want, but what you want be done. In an ultimate sense, John's right. He didn't hang on to the remove this cup side of things. What he held on to was, Father, I'll do what you tell me to. And instead of escaping, he stayed there. John is a different genre than the synoptic gospels. And if John differs from the synoptic gospels, it is because he is embedding back into the story of Jesus the truth about who Jesus is in an ultimate sense. The second way that we see this, and I'll only say a word about this so that we can wrap different days, it's that Passover itself is on a different day in John as opposed to in the synoptics. In the synoptic gospels, Passover happens, it starts on Thursday night. And so you, you look on the first day of unleavened bread when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, the disciples said, where do you want us to go and make preparations for the Passover? That was Thursday afternoon. And then Thursday night, they get together and they have their Passover meal. Jesus goes out to the garden, gets arrested during the night on Friday and in the morning he's tried and then he dies on Friday afternoon. John omits all of the Passover language. He doesn't say, where do you want us to prepare the Passover? He takes all the features of the Passover meal and strips them out. There's no bowl that he's been dipping into the lamb stew with Judas with. There's no breaking of the bread. There's no offering of the wine. There's no, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the night. We know what the hymn is. It's Psalms 113 to 118, the Egyptian Hallel. That's what you sing at Passover. John has a last supper with the disciples but it's not a Passover meal. And the reason it's not a Passover meal is because in John, when Jesus is crucified, Passover hasn't happened yet. 
Look at the few verses I've got there in John. They took Jesus from Caiaphas to Pilate's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the headquarters so as to avoid ritual defilement and to be able to eat the Passover. In other words, Passover is not until Friday night in John's gospel. It was on Thursday night in the synoptics. When Pilate heard these words, John 19 says, he brought Jesus outside and sat on the judge's bench at a place called the stone pavement or in Hebrew, Gabata. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about noon. See, in John's gospel, Passover hasn't happened yet. In the synoptics, it happened last night. Why is that the case? Well, it's the case because John's trying to make a theological point. At the very same time on Friday afternoon in John's Gospels that they are sacrificing the Passover lambs, Jesus is being sacrificed as the Passover lamb. Only John's Gospel mentions the breaking of the legs and goes out of its way to insist that Jesus' legs were not broken. There's a reason for that. It's because the Passover legislation is quite specific that you can't break any of the bones of the Passover lamb. This is John's way of saying Jesus is the Passover lamb. Historically, which of these is accurate? Almost certainly the synoptics. But John is willing to play fast and loose with the day of Passover so that you can get the point that Jesus is the Passover lamb. When we read John in its proper genre, we understand that what John is doing for us is he is telling us in an ultimate sense, this is who this Jesus character is. It may be that not every bit of John is as strictly historical as the synoptics, but on the other hand, what we learn about what Jesus did meant. We learn it in large part from John's gospel. And frankly, I think John's right in his assessment of what Jesus meant and who Jesus ultimately was. I know this summer we've walked through a little bit of uh, deep waters in terms of picking out these differences and disagreements. Think of how much poorer our vision of Jesus would be if we lost one of these different paintings of him. I could recognize George Washington if I saw him walking down the street, even though I've never seen a photograph of him. You could too. Everything from our gospel writers, and I thank God that we do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, um, I pray that while you will indulge us the opportunity to look at all of these differences and disagreements and and tease out the literary artistry of the gospel writers. I pray that in the midst of that, you will take your word and put it onto our hearts and draw us closer to you and to your son. And I pray this in Jesus' name.